to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. And today we're talking with Leah Mehta, who is the author of a brilliant book on communication, Soft is the New Hard. Welcome, Leah. Thank you for having me. And where are you chatting to me from today? So I live in a gorgeous little town called Willow Grove, which is based in Gippsland in regional Victoria. So I'm about an hour and 45 minutes from Melbourne. I'm an hour from the beach, an hour from the snow, 15 minutes from the nearest town with supermarkets and everything you'd like. But my little town only has about 350 people in it and we are beside a gorgeous lake with the mountains coming up behind it. So it's a pretty awesome place to live. It sounds like a pretty good part of the world actually. Yeah, it really is. I've done a lot of travel in my life. I spent a lot of my 20s travelling overseas and all around Australia and I think travel goes either one way or the other with you. You either think, gee, I want to live somewhere else forever or you go, I've actually got it really good at home. And for me, that's what it did when I explained, just like I explained to you, to the people that I met in, you know, remote parts of Western Australia, they'd say to me, what on earth are you doing over here? (laughs) We're going to be talking today about communication and working through some of the key themes from your book. But I wanted to start with asking about what inspired you to write the book. I've been running my business for about eight years now and it was, I started off as a communications consultant and that was after a career in journalism and corporate communications. And about four years ago, I was getting a lot of people asking me for advice on how to have difficult conversations and be more assertive. So I started running workshops and training to help teach those skills. And I've always loved writing, but I suppose my training style changed about two years ago. I was getting great feedback on the sessions that I was running and people were loving the content. But the one thing I noticed was that I was teaching the communication skills. I was probably doing what most communication workshops do, but they weren't necessarily sticking. Knowing and doing are two very different things. And people would leave the workshops going, this is great. I'm going to do all this stuff and then go back to doing what they'd always done. And I really didn't want that. I really wanted to see people making lasting change in the way they communicated. So I changed my workshops and training and developed a model around that. And I suppose I really wanted to capture all of those things that I teach in the workshops, in my coaching. I wanted to capture that in a book. So for a couple of reasons, one, so that I could have more of an impact and reach more people who might not be able to come along to my workshops, but two, so people, if they come along to my training, they now have, I always give people a lot of resources to go away with, but now they've really got that whole uh, knowledge bank in a really practical, plain speak book to help them embed these skills for life. And why don't we start by defining what are soft skills? Yeah, great question. So when we refer to soft skills, we're referring to those skills that really 
make someone good to work with, not just good at what they do. So we're talking about things like communication, mindset, resilience, adaptability, leadership, interpersonal skills, your emotional intelligence, critical thinking, problem solving, all of those intangible qualities that are absolutely crucial for our success, but that a lot of us have never been taught. And we haven't been taught it for two main reasons. One, because traditionally they've been seen as something that's innate. You've either got it or you don't. You know, you're born a good communicator or a good people person or you're not. And the second reason, because traditionally, and for a long time, soft skills have been considered the fluffy extra, you know, nowhere near as hard or as important as those hard technical skills that you might need to be a lawyer or an accountant or whatever it is that you do. You know, they've been considered this fluffy extra, but thankfully the world is really changing and waking up to the fact that having the right person in a job is just as important as having the person with the right experience. I think that's really interesting. And I haven't actually read the book, but I was ordering my next batch of books to read. And one of the books that I picked out was a Daniel Pink book that talks about left brain, right brain. Yes, I've got that on my shelf too. And that was looking at what are the skills of the future? And some of the things he's talking about are that maybe some of these softer skills are actually going to become more and more important and more and more valuable in the future. And I wanted to mention that because as you've said, sometimes soft skills have been undervalued but they're becoming more valued and more important. So it's really important, especially if you're lacking in some of these skills, to really invest the time to improve. It sure is. And I can give you a few further examples with that. So Deloitte Australia actually did a study, Soft Skills for Business Success, in 2017. And they found that by 2030, two-thirds of all jobs in Australia will have a soft skill focus and that compares to half of all jobs in the year 2000. There's been a whole heap of others as well. For example, Google, you would think Google, tech giant, they'd be employing for STEM skills. They did a study in 2013 called Project Oxygen where they went through all of their hiring, firing and promotion data for the last 15 years since their inception because what they were doing was trying to find out what makes the best employees here, who are the people that are succeeding. And so they went into this fully expecting STEM to be up near the top, but of the top eight skills that are make you the most successful at Google, STEM is actually number eight. It came in last and the top seven with things like being a good coach, communication skills, having insights into other people, empathy and being supportive of your colleagues, being a problem solver, critical thinking. They were the soft skills and it gave Google a real wake up and they went, geez, we need to change how we're hiring because these skills are actually absolutely essential to our success. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so we've identified that these skills are really important and that not everyone has them. So how do you go about, first of all, identifying which soft skills to focus on if there's a range of them that need to be developed? And then how would you go about, if you were working with someone, how would you go about helping them to improve? Yeah, great question. So let's look at the first bit in terms of which soft skill to develop. 
you can start anywhere, okay? But I argue that communication is the king of the soft skills because it does underpin any relationship you have with another person. So unless all human connection, human relationships is underpinned by communication. So unless you're working in total isolation, never speaking to another person, then communication is really important. And the thing that is, I suppose, different in my approach and in the book, it's probably more in line with someone like your Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People in that it starts with you. So if you're looking to improve your soft skills, number one thing you can do is really do a bit of a check on yourself and improve your self-awareness because you can't change what you don't acknowledge and we get really good at telling ourselves stories to justify our behaviour and we tend to go into what I call the DBJs. We deny, blame and justify. So, you know, oh, no, that I never do that or we blame and say, yeah, but they speak to me in a horrible way so, of course, I respond badly or we justify and we say, well, that's the culture of my organisation so it's okay. But to be able to know where to improve and how to improve, we actually have to get brutally honest with ourselves. So we have to go, you know what, what's it like working with me? What's it like? being around me? How do I communicate when I'm under pressure? Am I consistent? How do I behave? All of those really hard questions. And for the brave people listening, one of the great ways to improve your self-awareness if you're feeling strong enough to do this is something that I did last year where I actually approached about 20 people in my network and they were people I considered long and hard who to contact and they were friends, family, some clients, some former colleagues, and I actually asked them to highlight my weaknesses. What did they think my perceived weaknesses were? I didn't want them to tell me my strengths, which was very challenging for some of them. I told them I wasn't going to get offended. I was looking to increase my self-awareness, and the only way I could do that is if I saw myself more closely to how other people saw me, and it was an incredibly valuable exercise. Wow. I know you'd have to go into that feeling strong and with a mindset of improvement rather than taking that as criticism. How was that process for you? And if you want to share, were there anything that you took from that that you are now working on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it was an incredible process. The great thing was the feedback and people were, they were very honest. They did exactly what I'd asked. I knew all of the weaknesses that were highlighted I knew were things that I needed to work on. So the great news for me was my self-awareness is pretty high. Now, I didn't get any surprises. I didn't have someone say, oh, Leah, you know, you can do this and me go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. Nothing was a surprise. But what that then told me was, Leah, you know these are some issues for you. Other people can see them as well. So you need to do something about it. So it was things like I had a really high personal drive. I'm a really dynamic, high action person. And that works super well for me in a lot of situations. However, sometimes my level of energy, passion and enthusiasm can be intimidating for other people. And I know that. And that's something that I have to be 
really aware of, depending on the communication style of the person I'm dealing with. If I'm communicating with other extroverted out there people, then I can go to town. But if I'm speaking to a room of passive communicators, it's not about pandering to other people, but it's about having that self-awareness to go, okay, Leah, you've got a different crowd here. A different approach is going to have the best chance of connecting with them. I suppose one of the important things is if any of the listeners do take this step and try it themselves, is not to use the feedback to beat yourself up. That's not what this exercise is about. It's not about going, oh, all these people have highlighted my weaknesses, I'm a terrible person and I've got to flog myself over the back. No, that's not what this is about. It's about then going, okay, how can I improve? So I actually took that feedback and I created a document where rather than saying these are all your weaknesses, I reframed them into these are things that you can work on. And I read that each morning as part of my morning routine to go, remember, these are the things you're working at. And that's incredibly valuable. That's really interesting. And I like the way you're approaching that as something that you're looking at daily. I think we can forget that making changes, if I go back to my tennis days, it could take a thousand repetitions of something to actually change a habit. So it's really interesting to see that you're practicing what you preach in terms of making these changes yourself too. So you talked about self-awareness being really helpful in identifying which of the soft skills to work on and that communication would be right up there as probably the first thing to work on. So we've identified that, then how would you go about improving that? The model that I outline in my book, and really it does tie into that self-awareness beautifully, I think that a lot of the way we teach communication is it's not that it's wrong, but it's ineffective because we jump straight to the communication bit. We jump straight to give me some skills to have a difficult conversation with someone, you know, just give me some quick flash in the pan tips and tricks. And I think that's our undoing. I think that because we jump straight there, that we miss the whole element of self-management and you will never be a good communicator unless you get better at managing you. And exactly like you said, this is not something you will ever perfect. Communication and improving your soft skills is a process, not an end game. So it's something that you constantly work at and no one's a perfect communicator. Everyone can improve. I do this for a living. I stuff it up all the time. That's okay. I'm human but what can I do better? So the model that I talk about in the book is known as the five C's of communication. And the interesting thing about this model is that communication is actually the last C. And I suppose most people are going into the book thinking, oh, yep, communication is going to be there first, but it's not. The first C is actually choice. And when I say choice, what that comes down to is you really asking yourself the tough question of, am I prepared to take personal responsibility for the way I communicate with no room for yeah, but, okay? A lot of people, yeah, but Leah, you don't have the boss I have. You don't have the colleague that I have, or you haven't been in the situation that I have. And you're absolutely right. I haven't. However, Our situation and circumstance does not have to control how we respond. And 
you know, for anyone out there who's read Viktor Frankl's incredible work that was written in the 1940s and still stands up today, Man's Search for Meaning, he survived three years in Nazi concentration camps during World War II and he came out of that experience after leaving Auschwitz to say everything can be taken from a man but the last of the human freedoms, our ability to choose our response in any given circumstance. And that's where we have to start looking at how we communicate. We have to make a choice about who we are, how we behave, what our character is, what do we want to be known for? And that has to be that absolute foundation. Am I going to take personal responsibility for the way I communicate? And so choice is the first of the C's and what are the others? So the second one is control and control comes down to your emotional intelligence. Now, self-awareness is one of the key elements of emotional intelligence, as is self-regulation. So do you have the ability to have some control over your emotions? You know, when you get really frustrated or angry and upset, it doesn't mean you're not allowed to feel or you're not allowed to have your moment, but are you able to regulate your response and your emotions? Because again, you will never be able to communicate effectively if you don't have some control over how you respond. Again, it's not about being a robot. It's not about saying you can't feel, but you need to have the ability to control it. So there's a whole heap of tips in the book. And one of the key ones is putting a pause between your reaction and your response. So often someone's talking to us and we're half listening to what they're saying and in our head we're saying, when they shut up, this is what I'm going to say. And we're getting upset and we just launch into this response and in our heads we're often then saying, oh, my goodness, this isn't even what I wanted to say, but our mouths have just started. Now, if you get into the habit of taking a deep breath and putting in a pause, and you can even say something. Someone bails you up in the corridor and lobs something onto you. You can say, you know what, I'd love to chat with you about that. You've caught me a little bit off guard. Can you give me 15 minutes to think about it and I'll come back to you? And use that time to go away, lock yourself in the bathroom if you have to, punch the air, do what you need to do, have your moment, and then think to yourself, how do I actually want to respond here? and then go and have the conversation in a more controlled way. And you can even do this in the moment. Say you're in a performance review and your boss gives you feedback that you weren't expecting. Obviously, you're not going to ask to leave the room and come back in 15 minutes, but you could in that moment still take a deep breath and say, wow, okay, that's not what I was expecting. Can you just give me a moment? Again, take a big deep breath that couple of seconds, you are more likely to respond more positively than if you just launched into it. The other part of the control piece is controlling your controllables and letting the rest go. Something that a lot of us do, we're all guilty of it, I think, to a different extent, is worrying about things that are totally out of our control and wasting time on this. We have no control over how other people respond to us. We don't have control of other people's feelings, of their communication, of their emotions. The only thing we can control is us. So I often use the example in my workshops, 
where I say, you know, I have no control over what anyone thinks of the session. I have no control over what any of your listeners think of this podcast. I have to be okay with that because I can't change their mind. I can't reach through their earbuds and say, but that bit was really good. I have no control over how anyone responds, but I can control me. I can control the knowledge that I bring, the energy I bring to our discussion, how much preparation I've done, and that's it. I can control me and I have to let the rest go. Love it. And number three? Number three is consideration. Now, the first two Cs are very much focused on that self-management piece. The third C, consideration, is where we start to go, okay, what outcome do we want? How are we best able to communicate to get that outcome? A lot of people lead with their emotions and they go into a conversation from a point of view without even thinking about the outcome. And as a result, they often don't approach it from the best way. And I actually just had this situation myself. Yesterday, I was having some issues with a contractor that I was using and I was getting really frustrated, but I need to deliver this element of work. So rather than get all huffy and get stuck into this person about, you know, come on, this work's not up to standard, it wasn't avoiding that conversation. I let her know that, look, there are some problems here, but our focus needs to be what outcome do we need and when and what do we need to do to get there. So I considered what's the best approach to this situation. The consideration piece is also about considering the person you're communicating with. Now, you might have staff or you will have staff who are all very different people. They'll all have different communication styles. You might have some assertive people. You might have some who fall into a bit of that passive aggressive behavior, some who are passive, some who are aggressive. You need to be able to adapt and adjust to best communicate with them. Again, it's not about pandering to other people or being inauthentic or changing who you are, but the best leaders and the best communicators understand that they do need to adapt and adjust and consider the situation, circumstance, outcome that they want to decide how to best communicate. That's an interesting one. And I can think of examples in the workplace where I've heard people say, I've said this three times to whoever it is, but maybe the issue wasn't that it hadn't been said three times, but had they understood the communication style of the person that they were talking with and explained it in a way that would make sense to them. That's what I thought of when you were giving that example. Yeah, look, I actually was coaching a leader recently who was really frustrated and he worked in industry and he said, I'm getting up at my pre-start meetings and I'm giving the instructions and I'm saying, has anyone got any questions? And no one's asking a question yet. Then they're going out and they're making mistakes. And he was just furious. And it was really clear through our conversation that the crux of the issue was the way he was communicating in the meetings. He was quite an intimidating, aggressive communicator. He didn't intend to be aggressive, but that's how it was being perceived. He had a team of younger guys that he was leading. They were scared of him. They were scared to ask a question because when they did, sometimes he was guilty of biting their heads off, you know, and responding, oh, you should know that or because he was in a rush. So people weren't asking questions and then they were making mistakes. Now, you can get into arguments about, oh, but they should and 
again, what I always bring people back to, what outcome do you want and take personal responsibility for your part. Now, he's really working hard on changing his approach and style in those meetings, being more open to feedback, scheduling more time for those pre-start meetings so they're not so under the pump. And people are starting to ask questions, all because he finally did that consideration and control and choice piece. Mm, and thinking, reflecting on himself rather than you talked about blame earlier on. Yeah. So with four and five, yep. I thought it would be interesting to frame it in the context of someone that is a, they're a decent communicator. So they're, they're not upsetting people. They can get their message across reasonably well, but they want to become excellent. I don't know if that's possible, but I was thinking that it would be really interesting because I'm sure there's listeners of the podcast who they're pretty good communicators, but they want to become amazing. So Yeah, and that's a really great point because most of the people I work with are good communicators. Like they've got to their leadership positions. They have some skills. They're confident. They're competent. You know, they know their stuff often though. They know their technical stuff and they know how to communicate when the pressure's not on. But when the pressure is on, that's when our wheels can fall off a bit. So the last two C's, the second last C is courage. Now, I have a lot of people say to me, you know, even those people who are quite good communicators, that, oh, I don't have the confidence to do something. And to that, I always respond with, it's not about confidence. It's about courage. You can be the passive shy person and still have those difficult conversations. You might not be the passive person. You might be quite assertive, but you might have not had a conversation with your boss perhaps because you think, oh no, that could backfire on me. And it could. Sometimes you do make the choice not to have a conversation. That's fine. But if the communication has to be had, it actually comes down to courage. Can you have that conversation even under pressure? And There's three questions that I often get people to ask themselves to help them be more courageous communicators. And the first one is, what's the worst that can happen if I, you know, have this conversation? What would be the reality if it did happen? And what steps or plan can I put in place to help mitigate that worst thing from happening? And often when we get really clear on the answers to those questions, it gives us the courage to take action. So I had someone that I work with chose to resign from their job last week and they decided to, they'd been in a really difficult place for a long time and they knew their workplace wasn't where they needed to be. They're in a leadership position. They, for all intents and purposes, are a good communicator, but they weren't sure how to go about this conversation or even whether to make the decision. And when we worked through those questions, she realised really quickly that actually she needed to resign because what's the worst that could happen wasn't having the communication about resigning. It was things continuing as they were now. So when she got clear on that and she went, actually the worst could happen is what's happening now, not having the conversation that then gave her that courage to go out there and have it. That's really helpful. And number five. And number five. <laughs> last piece. And it's communication. And yeah. really this model follows its sequential steps. 
You need to do those four founding steps before you get to communication. But the communication bit is still really important because knowing is not doing. Thinking and considering and making a choice and having control of your emotions and building up the courage still means nothing if you don't actually go out there and communicate. So if you're already a pretty good communicator, one of the things I would encourage you to consider is whether you lead with warmth first or strength first. This is based on some research by Amy Cuddy from Harvard Business School and Some of your listeners might be familiar with her work on body language and power posing. It's incredible stuff. But she wrote with a couple of colleagues a paper on how to build trust with warmth above strength. And it's a really great concept. It's very important for leaders to understand. It's not about being fluffy. It's not about, you know, being everyone's best friend. But to be a leader, people need to want to follow you. And to want to follow you, they need to feel like you care about them. So when you communicate, are you doing things that help create a connection and show you care? Are you communicating in a cold way with strength and forgetting about the warmth? Because actually that will mean that people don't do their best for you. If they feel like you don't care about them, you might be a strong leader, but They don't feel cared for, so they don't do their best. They'll do the minimum for you, what they have to do to do their job, but they won't go over and above. Now, by the same token, if you have warmth without strength, that's a problem too because then you might be that weak leader that people don't look up to. But it's really important to get the order right when you communicate and when you lead, that you're leading with warmth first, strength second. That chapter is also about some really tangible skills on how to have difficult conversations and deliver feedback. A really popular model that was popularised in the 80s and 90s was, I won't swear on your podcast, but the sandwich approach. And we all know what sort of sandwich it was. And, (laughs) And a lot of people still use this approach to feedback. But the sandwich approach being that you say a positive, And then you give them the real feedback, which is the, let's call it the crap sandwich, hey? (laughs) We give them the crap in the middle and then we end it out with a positive. Now, I'm not saying that in all situations that's the wrong approach. Sometimes that can still be effective if you genuinely have positive feedback as well. But what I see a lot of leaders doing is couching negative feedback that can be really significant or it doesn't even have to be negative. It might be a performance issue or, you know, something they need to address that's quite serious and they try to soften it on either side. And this has a couple of problems. One, if the person can see through the positives, if they're not genuine, they can get really put out and lose trust for you because they think you're just saying those nice things to try to soften this and they're cottoned on. But the more dangerous thing that can happen is the person you're giving feedback to hangs on to the positives on either side and almost dismisses the negative because they think, oh, but it can't be that bad because they said all of this positive stuff about me too. And then they go back to work and don't make the changes that you need them to. So the communication chapter is really practical in how do you have these conversations? How do you go about it? Interesting. Now, I've got some specific questions for you. 
number of our audience run distributed teams or have remote teams, which means a lot of the communication is written. So they might be communicating with clients mainly via email, or they might be communicating internally with tools like Slack. I had some questions for you because when you're communicating in person or on a video, you can see body language and you can get more context and a better sense of what someone's trying to say. Absolutely. So how would you help someone improve their skills with written communication? For example, they've received an email from a client and the client's complaining about a particular thing. But if you really dig into it, that's not what they're complaining about. There's actually an underlying issue that they haven't said that you should be picking up on. So how would you train someone to not just read what's written, but read what's not said and kind of piece it together, the bigger picture of what someone's trying to say when you don't have any body language and you can't see the person? Great question because so much of communication is body language and tone. And you do lose that in written communication. And I have a remote team as well. So I've got a virtual assistant and my business manager is remote as well. So these are challenges. And so how do you look for what's unsaid in, say, written communication? One, you've got to consider the context. There's a guy called Oscar Trimboli. You might be familiar with his work who talks about deep listening. Now, even though you're not listening in terms of to the words being said to you, you can still listen to an email or a Slack message. You do have to be careful because you can read too much into it, but it's about looking at it and going, okay, so I'm reading the words on the page. What's the broader context? What's going on in this situation? Who am I dealing with here? And that's important thing because if you've got a relationship with someone where you know, it's been built over a long time. Maybe it is someone you work closely with. You don't necessarily need, you know, the niceties around a message, although, you know, it can still play an important part. You mentioned Oscar Tremboli and deep listening. Yes. And how with, so looking at the context, but thinking about the person who's communicating with you as well. Yes. We need to think about the person who's communicating with us. And unfortunately, passive-aggressive communication isn't just face-to-face, it does come through in email as well. A lot of people don't know how to say what they really want to say. So it's about thinking what's going on for this person. Are they someone who is likely to tell me straight out if there's a problem? Because if they are, then maybe you are reading between the lines too much. If it was someone like me who is always very direct, compassionately direct, but if I've got an issue with you, I would tell you. So if you started reading between the lines in one of my emails, you could, you know, not definitely, but you could be at risk of going down the garden path because if I had an issue, I would actually tell you. But if you know that you're communicating with someone who perhaps does struggle to say what they mean in the written email, what I would do is really be careful not to make assumptions. There's that great saying when we assume you make an ass out of you and me, and that's using the letters of assume, obviously. If you had concerns, if you've read this written email and you're going, oh, I think there's something else here, I'd be trying to get in touch with them to have a conversation, uh, a verbal one, as quickly as you can. That's if you've got an issue there because when you get back into the back and forth, 
Written communication has a really important place and I touch on this in the book. It can be a great tool when you need to cover your ass and you need to get something documented and you want those steps there very clearly outlined. Wonderful. But such a big part of communication is tone and voice that if you ever get something that you think, whoa, are they offended or are they angry at me because it's a really short message or what's going on, it's to understand that it might be those things, but it might be none of those things. And really don't make the assumption the best thing you can do is, you know, have a conversation. And that's why for me, I do work virtually. I use a lot of written communication, email, I use Slack as well, but I will always do a catch up every day, face to face, even just a few minutes on Zoom or Skype, whatever method you want to use to eyeball the person and explain what you're after because so much of it is conveyed that way. There's some great advice in that. And I'm just reflecting on how that applies to my business and having one-on-one calls, which we used to do just with audio with Skype. And now we do via video and we make a commitment that everyone in the team is having regular scheduled calls to check in with their manager. And the other thing that it made me think of was something that we've talked about on a previous podcast, which was again related to email communication. And I've got a follow-up question for you around this. But it was looking at with email, you can go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. So how can you predict when you send that email, what the other person is going to reply with and what their questions are going to be and try and make the backwards and forwards only once or twice by predicting when you send it, what's their reaction going to be or what's their next question going to be addressing it. But my question actually ties into something you talked about with email niceties. Yes. And how do you get the right balance? So you might have personality type A who's yep. very blunt and skips all of the niceties and if that was in person that wouldn't matter because of the big smile on their face exactly that would be person a and then person b maybe is spending a lot of time in the email talking about things that aren't relevant and it's not a concise email but they've made the other person feel warm and (laughs) what would your advice be to those two different people and how would you get somewhere maybe in the middle yeah absolutely so i use an approach in person and in email, and I teach this in all of the work I do, it's something I call the barbecue test. I developed it when I was a journalist, actually, and it's a way of getting to the heart of what you're trying to say. So, you know, I work with a lot of engineers and the like on big projects, and I'll ask them to explain it to me, and I'll get war and peace, or you get that big, long email (laughs) where there's all this detail that you just don't need. And I'll always say to them afterwards, and I apply this to my communication as well, I'll say, that's all great. Now imagine I'm standing next to you at a barbecue on a Sunday afternoon, beer in hand, and I say to you, hey, mate, what's that project about? And it blows my mind every time because they'll sum up what they've just spent half an hour explaining to me. They'll sum it up in a couple of lines. Now, I say to people, if you don't know what your conversation's about, if you don't know what the key messages are, you're not ready to have the conversation or send the email, okay? You have to get clarity first before you have that communication. So that might mean that, you know, rather than just 
belting out that email or, you know, spending hours writing out this big, long tone. It's going, what's this actually about? And there's a model called the inverted pyramid that journalists use. And again, I teach a lot of my clients this. Rather than, you know, start with all the background at the start, it's almost like you'd write a report with an executive summary type of opening line in your email saying, hi, Meryl, that takes two words. So really, there's not an excuse for not having it. Saying hi, such and such, and then having that, this is what this email's about. You might use some dot points. You might then back it up with some of the key background or information, but you want the person to get what the message is about right up front, okay? It's absolutely crucial. The one thing that I want all listeners to really check themselves on is their use of the word just, particularly in written communication. It's an apology word. It's a way of talking ourselves down. It's particularly common with women. Men do it too, absolutely, but a lot of women who are very conscious of not presenting as a bitch or as, you know, too direct, we soften our emails to the point where we apologise for doing our jobs and we start them off with just a quick email, just wondering if you've had a chance to look at that report I sent through, you know, just this, just that, and we do it all the time, just checking in. And it's actually apologising for what you're doing. Some people go, but Leah, does it really matter that much? I used to do this in my emails and it was pointed out to me when I was working in the power industry with really high-level media work that I was doing. And one of the managers said to me, Leah, you realise I'm getting 100 emails a day. When I get yours and it starts off with just a quick email or just wondering if, what do you think I think? And he said, I then go, it's not that important. I'll get back to that one. And he said, by the time you've got to the bit about you're on deadline for a two o'clock media deadline, I haven't even got to that. So we do really need, before you write that email, it's what is this about? What do I need this person to get? And I can be polite and it's really important that you are polite and that you have that warmth, but you've got to be clear on what your messages are in order to communicate well. Mm -hmm. I might need to go back and have a look at some of my communication. Oh, look, now you've heard it. It's phenomenal. You'll notice we all do it. The other thing I see a lot of people do is use it when they introduce themselves. I'm just the receptionist. I'm just a stay-at-home mum or I'm just this. And we talk ourselves. It's a very Australian thing to do. I know there'll be people outside Australia listening to this, but it's a very Australian thing we do because of tall poppy syndrome being so much of our culture and for those international listeners, that's this horrible trait we have here in Australia where we cut down people who shine too brightly. So what a lot of us do is talk ourselves down before someone else has the chance. So really look out for the word just in communication. Wonderful. Leah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Did you have any parting words that you wanted to share just before we wrap up. In fact, I said just right then. (laughs) Just has a place and in that context, it was absolutely appropriate. (laughs) All safe. No, look, to wrap up, if I could leave listeners with anything, it is to recognise that 
soft skills really are the new hard and the reason they're the new hard is because the hard technical skills are easy to outsource and automate and we are in a time of radical change at the moment with software and systems and it's all wonderful but if you want to future-proof your business, if you want to be the best that you can be, you need to see the soft skills as just as important. So you need to work on them. There's something that can be taught and learned and developed and neuroplasticity has shown us that, but you have to work on it. No one gets it right all the time. Everyone can improve. And as long as you understand that and are always doing that self-reflection to say, you know what, what could I do a bit better? How did I go today? How did I handle that conversation? Is there anything I could do differently or could improve on next time? As long as you are doing that, you will be okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been very insightful. Thank you for having me. By the way, If you want support to get paid and make better decisions, we've put together a zero small business toolkit, including cash flow forecast templates and guides to setting up zero. Grab it for free at beninjas.com slash zero toolkit. And that's X-E-R-O-T-O-O-L-K-I-T.